Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, just would love for an opportunity to meet you after the service if you're new here with us. Um, this summer, we have been going through a series in the Psalms. So if you have your Bible, I just want to invite you to crack them open to Psalm 51 this morning. And that's the Psalm that we're looking at here. Uh, last week, I said how the Psalms can be helpful to us in expressing ourselves to God. I don't know about you, but I can feel sometimes like I don't know what to pray or even how to get started when it comes to prayer. And I know many Christians often find themselves in seasons where they also find themselves at a loss for how to pray. And this is why Christians throughout history have turned to the Psalms. As Eugene Peterson says, they give us a language adequate for responding to the God who speaks to us. I like that. The Psalms were designed to be prayed. They were written by people just like you and I, and they, people who experience the joys and the sweetness of life, but also experience life's heartaches and the bitterness that we encounter. The Psalms are raw, honest, but they're also God-honoring. And when we don't know how to pray, the Psalms can give a voice to how we feel. Timothy Keller said, when it comes to the Psalms, we are in a sense to put them inside our own prayers or perhaps to put our prayers inside of them and approach God that way. And this leads to me to why I have chosen to preach from Psalm 51 this morning. Psalm 51 is a confession. And if prayer can feel difficult at times, well then friends, confession can feel downright impossible. I'm not sure about Calvary, what it was like for those of you who grew up here or the church you grew up in, but for the church that I grew up in, confession was not something that was modeled all that well, both in church or in our, my home growing up. Perhaps this had something to do with the, uh, the German culture that I grew up in, where we were not very uh, comfortable in expressing our feelings. Uh, and in church, we weren't Catholic, so we didn't have those confessional booths. Pretty much the only time that personal sin was addressed out loud was if you were caught, and then you were expected to apologize to those who you hurt. But actually talk about it. Confess it to others? Not a chance. That's too personal, right? Too vulnerable. And something just to be kept between you and the Lord. But you see, all of that silence, it created a culture of fear around confession for me. It seemed like confessing only got you into further trouble. So not only did I find prayer difficult growing up, but I struggled to talk about my sin even with God. And I don't think that I'm the only one who's felt that way. But Psalm 51 has changed a lot of that for me. You see, this prayer expresses the heaviness of heart that I have felt at times for when I have been unfaithful. Praying the psalm has helped me to convey the deep regret, but also how I have longed for God to work in my life. Praying Psalm 51 not only gave me a voice when I felt like I didn't have the right words to say, but it taught me a vital life lesson. That rather than getting you further into trouble, confession 
liberates. Let's read Psalm 51 together. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge." Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with the hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the first thing that you might notice about this psalm is the notation above verse 1 that says that this psalm is for the director of music and that it's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, if you're unaware, David was one of the most famous kings in the nation of Israel. He was known for killing the giant Goliath just when he was a young boy and also for being a man after God's own heart. Yet David is infamous for one of the most vile atrocities recorded in the scriptures found in 2 Samuel, where it describes how he exploited his power of, as the king one evening when he sent his men to bring a married woman named Bathsheba to him, where she likely felt pressured, probably even fear, to submit to having sex with the king. Now, upon learning that Bathsheba became pregnant. David then tried to cover up his sin by bringing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from the war, anticipating that Uriah would then make love to his wife upon his return and then think that the child was his. But when that scheme didn't work, David had Uriah sent to the front of the battle line and then ordered the rest of the army to retreat so that Uriah would be killed. 
And then David took Bathsheba home to be his wife. However, God did not allow David to get away with this, with these heinous deeds. The Lord revealed David's actions to the prophet Nathan, who confronted him and told David about the terrible consequences that his sin would bring upon him and his family. Now, despite how reprehensible David's actions are, it isn't all that shocking for us to hear about a man with a great deal of power abusing his position and hurting others with actions including unacceptable sexual behavior. It's far too often in our society that we hear about people in authority such as government officials or even pastors who are involved in these kinds of scenarios. But what is surprising about David and what makes him different than so many other people who are caught in sin is that David doesn't make excuses. He doesn't shift blame. He doesn't try to justify or make light of his actions. What he does that makes a huge difference is that David confesses, and confession liberates. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, it says that as soon as Nathan confronts him, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that wasn't the only time that he confessed. That was just the first time that he acknowledged what he did. At some point, David sat down, maybe over the course of a few hours, but more likely over the course of a few weeks or months, and he penned this psalm, which is a fuller, more complete confession. You see, confession... It's often not just a one-time thing. Certainly God forgives us when we admit our sins to him the first time that we come to him, and we need to trust that he is faithful in doing that. We don't have to go to God apologizing for something we've done over and over and over again. But it may be necessary both for ourselves and for those whom we've hurt to confess the wrong that we've done more than once as part of an ongoing process of healing and reconciliation, or even just to maintain our own obedience. Think of addicts who confess to their support groups regularly, even though they may have been sober for years. They do this in order to maintain their sobriety. And so we may confess again and again as a way to maintain our obedience. And David's willingness to continue to acknowledge what he has done is one thing that makes his confession to me authentic. It's not just between him and God, right? This is public for everyone to read. We, we see at the beginning, this is a song that is meant to be sung. It's for the director of music. And so this shows us that David is not only humble, but he is committed to repentance. In the first stanza, the psalmist writes, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So the first thing I see here is the hope that he has. 
right? Looking for mercy, something he knows that he does not deserve, forgiveness that cannot be earned, but is completely at the discretion of the one who possesses it. But fortunately, the psalmist also knows the character of this God whom he is asking mercy from. You see, Yahweh is the God of unfailing love and great compassion. His unfailing chesed. This is the Hebrew word that describes a love that is loyal, reliable, and sacrificial. Chesed. God is not surprised by human sinfulness. You see, he anticipates that we will sin, and so it's out of this sacrificial love and generosity for us that he does things like make a day of atonement. Now, if you don't know what atonement is, it's another way of saying making reparations or making amends for something you've done wrong. Now, ironically, when I was thinking about how to describe this, I came up earlier this week with the idea that if I had borrowed your car and I had sideswiped something and scratched the paint, I would make atonement by taking it to the auto body shop and paying for it to have it repaired. Then yesterday, I walked out to my car parked on the street and noticed that someone had sideswiped my car, smashed off my side mirror, and they didn't even leave a note. No atonement happening there, my friends. But you see, God, God believes in atonement. God gave the nation of Israel a way to atone for their rebellion against him. Right In Leviticus 16, it says, On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all of your sins. You see, Yahweh is holy and sacred, and he is set apart. But you and I, when we sin, we become unholy. We become corrupt. It's like we have been stained because of our sin. And now there is a rift between us and God because a pure God and a filthy people cannot be intimate in a relationship with one another as God desires us to be with him. And so there is only one remedy. We've got to be cleaned up. And the psalmist, he keys in on this three times in verses 1 to 2. He recognizes how his sin has tarnished him and that he needs to be cleansed. And he can't do it himself. And so he writes, blot out my transgression. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And like the psalmist, I have felt that need to be cleansed from my sins too. Sometimes I am painfully aware of the separation that my unfaithfulness has caused between me and God. However, there have been times that rather than pray and ask him for forgiveness, that I have felt like I I can't approach God now, right? Until I have cleaned up my act. Have you ever felt that way yourself? Have you ever felt like you're unable to come before God until you've put some time and space between you and whatever it was that you did and live right for a while before coming to the Lord? This is both ironic and sad 
because we cannot clean up ourselves. And there is no amount of time and space we can put between ourselves and what we've done that'll just magically make it go away. It's no magic eraser. We are like children when we do that, who are trying to wipe the smudges off of our face, but doing it with hands caked in mud. We only make matters worse. But you see, the God of unfailing love and great compassion, he provides us a way for his people to receive the forgiveness and cleansing that we need through atonement. In the Old Testament, atonement happened when the priest offered a sacrifice of an animal, right, where he would shed its blood and pour out the blood onto the altar. But this had to be done over and over and over again because humans sin continuously. But later on, God would send his son Jesus, who made atonement for our sins once and for all through Christ's death on the cross. Hebrews 7 says of Jesus, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You see, unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. And so atonement has been made on our behalf. We cannot clean up our act or get right on our own, but if we confess like David does in this psalm, then we too can be made clean. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession liberates. The psalm continues, For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness in the inner parts. You teach wisdom in that secret place. We see from these verses that having an intimate knowledge of our sin is vital when it comes to confession, right? I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. We need to have an intimate knowledge of our sin when it comes to confession. So when I was a child, uh, one day my dad said to me, David, you're too old to be spanked. And I was like, yes, all right? Now, instead of being spanked, we're going to talk about what you've done wrong. And so I thought this was great because before all of the talking, all I had, you know, what I had to do was I had to admit what I would do wrong. I'd get a couple of swats on the derriere and it would all be done, right? But now my dad, he wanted more. He wanted me to understand why I misbehave. He wanted me to see what led to my actions. He wanted me to have an intimate knowledge of my sin because he believed that this type of knowledge would help me to make different choices going forward. And so rather than spanks, 
We talked about it. I forgot to mention, though, to you that my dad was a trained counselor. And so these talks were so in-depth, they were so long, that he says, one day I came to him and said, Dad, can I just get a spank and just get it over with? But you see, by doing the hard work of knowing ourselves, and especially knowing our sin, is vital to understanding what is at the root of it, right? Understanding won't solve it, but it can help us to see why do we make certain choices? Why do I act out in specific, inappropriate ways? And this can also help us not only to build the resolve not to do it again, but it can help us to be strategic in making different choices. Now, I know some people are put off by the idea of talking to a counselor. You don't get a choice if it's your dad, right? Some people, they scoff at analyzing their history in order to understand themselves better. But friends, Jesus says to us that knowing the truth will set you free. And I don't think he just meant the truth about him or the scriptures. I think that he would also want us to know our own stories better in order that we could be set free. Peter Scazzario says that to love God, we must not only know him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we must also know ourselves, our interior, the nature of our own heart, soul, and mind. And this is what I think the psalmist is getting at in verses 5 and 6 when he speaks about being sinful from birth and about God deserving faithfulness in the inner parts, teaching him wisdom in that secret place. You see, I don't think he's articulating his theological principle of original sin. Rather, he is giving an honest self-evaluation of the long-term influence sin has had on his life and how God wants us to be people whose external claims are consistent with the inner reality. He wants us to be people whose external claims are consistent with our internal reality, that what we say matches what is going on inside of our hearts and minds. You see, knowing our sins means also knowing how they impact other people too. But perhaps it looks like in verse 4 that David does not understand how his sin has impacted other people when he says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We might be like, really? Really only against God that he has sinned? What about Bathsheba or Uriah or Michael, David's first wife? Has he not sinned against all of them? Years ago, there was a very popular political leader who was caught on video uh, bragging about sexually violating women and being able to get away with it. When this video became public, he and his supporters, they just chalked it all up to locker room talk. Even some high-profile pastors came to his defense and just dismissed it as boys being boys. And there was nothing to confess, nothing to repent from. They played down the whole seriousness of this situation. And at first glance, we might think this is what the psalmist is doing here. Playing down his crimes, making less of it 
But that's actually the opposite of what he is doing. By saying that his actions are ultimately an offense against God, the psalmist is giving more weight to the harm that he has caused other people. It's not just wrong because they think so. God, the ultimate judge of the universe, says it's wrong. You see, it doesn't matter whether or not we can get away with something, right? Or if what we have done doesn't seem so bad to other people. Whether our actions are sin or not isn't dependent on societal acceptance or disapproval. But rather, are they evil in the sight of God, not just the standard of our world? By confessing that his actions are a sin against God, not only is the psalmist seeking liberation for himself, but this admission, his acknowledgement that what he did was evil in the eyes of God, also liberates the victims of his actions. Too often victims, especially women, are let down by the court of public opinion and victimized all over again. Growing up, and even to this day, I have heard and read so many ludicrous accusations against Bathsheba for what took place in 2 Samuel. Like somehow she seduced David. Like somehow she was a temptress. But the Bible doesn't suggest any of those things. It lays all the blame for what happened in this situation squarely on David, who says, yes, it is all my fault. I did it, and it's a sin. It's a sin against God. And David's victims are then liberated by this confession because their cries of injustice are validated Validated by God, whose verdicts and judgments are always right and just. Do you see how confession liberates? And it liberates the victims, too. He then says, cleanse me with the hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Again, the psalmist recognizes the need for cleansing from sin that only God can give. And despite how painful confession and God's discipline may be at times, they also cause joy and gladness because of the freedom and the reconciliation that they bring. And then he sings, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And all the Keith Green fans are tearing up at this. Me too. But in this stanza, the psalmist, he recognizes his dependence upon God if there is going to be any significant or ongoing transformation in his life. And that this needs to take place from the inside out, right? We cannot recreate a clean heart within ourselves. Only God can regenerate hearts and only God can renew spirits. This process is called sanctification. 
And it's the moral and spiritual transformation that takes place over the lifetime of a believer. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit within us as we cooperate with him through practicing obedience and spiritual disciplines, both on our own, but also within the life of the community of faith. In Ezekiel 36, it speaks about how God delivers, or how God desires to change our hearts and spirits, saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, it's not up to us to transform ourselves, but it's up to us to live relying upon God, to depend on God's spirit to change us and to cooperate with him. Perhaps when you read the line, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, you're tempted to worry. Is that really possible? Would God really do that? Would he really cast me from his presence or take his Holy Spirit from me? He doesn't want to. Do you remember I said how God is full of unfailing love and great compassion? However, Jesus also warns us in the Gospels, both Matthew and Luke, saying, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. You know, some people are like, feel like this is a really complex uh, understanding. Like, Whoa, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? But this is not a mystery of what this is. See, we see that the Holy Spirit's job, Jesus tells us in John 15 and 16, is to testify about Jesus and to convict the world of sin. And so blasphemy against the Spirit is when a person continually resists the Spirit's message about our need for Jesus to be our Savior and also our need to repent from our sin. So the blasphemy of the Spirit is the person who continually resists the Spirit's message of our need for Jesus as a Savior and our need to repent from our sin. But do you see how the person who is confessing to God that they have sinned and admits that they are in desperate need of saving, they don't need to worry that God will shut them out or take his Holy Spirit from them, right? Because confession is the proof that God is at work in their life, right? Do you see, again, how confession liberates us? The psalm continues, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Here we start to see the effects of that forgiveness has on a life of the repentant person. 
And the first thing, which might be a surprise to us, is that the confessor desires to be a teacher. The confessor desires to be a teacher. But who better to guide those who are lost in sin than those who had once gone astray themselves in the same way? This happens all the time in recovery groups or with those people who have struggled with unwanted sexual behavior. God delivers them, and then he calls them to be a light to other people who dwell in the same dark places that they were once lost in. You know, some of the most powerful moments that I have witnessed in ministry were when I was a youth pastor, and a number of the young adults who worked with me, with our students, they told their own stories of struggling with and overcoming sin in order to teach our students. Those were some of the most powerful experiences I've had in ministry. And we shouldn't be surprised that one of the ways that God wants to redeem our past is by having us help others who are presently in the dark places where we once found ourselves. By confessing our brokenness, but also the forgiveness and liberation that we have received in Christ, we can be used by God to help set other people free. The psalmist then goes on to commit himself to praising God by saying, My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. And so he worships God for his deliverance and freeing him from guilt. And isn't that what should move us to worship God too? It should. However, I do not always feel in the mood to worship. And... I'm not always nearly as grateful as I should be. But in these moments, that is also when I need to recall the great deliverance that God has worked in my life. How he has rescued me from sin. How he has saved me from death. Not because of anything good that I have done, but because of how loving and compassionate he is. So when we're not feeling motivated to worship, when we're constrained by a lack of desire, that is another moment, too, when we need to confess, right? Some might say, testify, right? Confession, it liberates us. It breaks the chains of indifference, and it frees us to proclaim God's greatness, You see, the psalmist isn't suggesting that our worship has to be some grandiose display of how much we owe God. It's not about raising your hands the highest in the sanctuary or giving some large offering on the offering plate and making a show of it. The kind of worship that God desires, again, it starts from the inside out. It's worship that proceeds out of confession. And so it's humble. And it's committed to not repeating the offense. It's authentic. See, God delights when we walk with him in humility. And it's our inner relationship with him that gives value to our outward expressions of praise. And so our worship is the visible sign of that invisible reality. So worship needs to come from the inside out. And it requires that we get the inside right with God, our heart, soul, and mind. And then we can and should give expression to it with all of our strength. And that leads us to the final verses. 
19, it says, And then you will delight in the sacrifices of righteousness, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so the psalmist cannot wait to bring his offering to worship, of worship to God, his gifts of gratitude and praise. But again, it starts from the inside out, and it starts with confession. Maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that you have been stuck in your prayer life, that you need some help. You don't have the words to say. Might I encourage you to start praying the Psalms? These are prayers that God wrote us to pray. And maybe you'd be surprised how often as you pray them that they resonate with you. And for those times where they don't, maybe that's an occasion where you can pray that psalm for somebody else that you know. Maybe a challenge that you're battling today is a particular sin or unwanted behavior that you've been struggling with for a while now, and perhaps you've confessed it before, but you don't seem to be making any progress. Maybe I would encourage you to get to know your sin better, know your own story better, And do the hard work of understanding your history and what may be at the root of your behavior. To do this hard work, more often than not, we need the guidance from professionals in these areas. Skilled people who we can seek out to give us support. And so we can seek help from support groups, counselors, or therapists. And this is a very courageous and bold step of obedience. And if this is something that you would be interested in, then we can suggest professionals who might be able to help you. And I would applaud anyone who is willing to make this kind of commitment to maturing in their faith. A couple of years ago, I was driving my boys home from uh, day camp, and uh, we were talking each day about the things that they were learning at camp. And they said that um, the Bible story that day was about repentance. And so we were talking about how hard repentance can feel, especially confessing that to another person. And they agreed, but then one of them piped up and said, but once you do, it makes everything feel so much better. I agree. It frees us. Beforehand, though, it can be a little intimidating. But this is one of those things where we need to to trust God and taste and see that he is good. My encouragement for each one of us is that we would find someone safe that we can talk to. Someone that you can be honest and vulnerable with so you do not have to bear your burdens alone. Right In James 5 it says, confess your sins to each other. Not just to God. Confess them to each other. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. So finally, maybe it has been a long time since you have come to God with confession. Or you've tried, but it's kind of felt half-hearted and you don't know what to say. Or it's difficult to even start. Today we have a beautiful opportunity before us. I think it's perfect timing that we're talking about confession, but that we're also celebrating the Lord's Supper on the same day, which represents Christ's body broken for our sins, his blood 
poured out for our transgressions, the wrong things that we've done. Do you see his said, his faithful, sacrificial, loving kindness? When the Apostle Paul gave one of the churches instructions on how they should take communion, he said, hey, listen, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. Basically, he's saying, consider your life. Are you in a right relationship with God? Are you in a right relationship with other people? If not, confess. So we're going to do this right now. We're not going to do it out loud. We're going to, while the elements are being handed out, we're going to play some background music, and then we're going to take a moment to quietly humble ourselves before our loving Father, admit our sin, ask Him to forgive us, help us to overcome, give us the the strength and the courage to find a person that we might need to reconcile with. And then... In response, trusting that our Father is faithful to forgive and restore us, when we all have them, we're going to take the elements together, which symbolizes our atonement, that things have been made right, and we can proclaim the good work that Jesus has done for us. And then after we've done this together, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up to lead us in that final song. And my hope is, just like the psalm here, it, the psalmist finished talking about the forgiveness that frees him up to worship the Lord. I hope that our time uh, in confession will also free us up to worship him with joy and gladness and that our praises will be the visible sign of the invisible reality that confession has liberated us to. This time I'd like to invite those who have asked to help me uh, with the Lord's Supper to come on up. So the servers, they're going to go down uh, the outside aisles and down the middle aisles, and they're going to hand out the elements. And this is going to take a bit of a moment. If you guys want to come over onto this side, that would be great. And during that time, we just ask, this is the time you just hold on to the elements until we've all been served. And this is our time to reflect, to pray, to confess. And not only reflect on the significance of what we're about to do, but also to examine ourselves. And once everybody is served, then we're going to take the the element together. Now, if you would prefer one of the prepackaged elements and you didn't pick one up in the foyer, um, you can, there, we have some in the foyer. Maybe put up your hand and maybe we can have some people who will hand them out for you. Thanks, Judy. She's going to do that. So if you want one of the prepackaged ones, you can have that. But this is the time now that we have to celebrate what God has done for us and to receive uh, the liberation that he wants to give to each of us. So Lord, we thank you for this time and we thank you for this meal that you have given us that we get to celebrate with regularly the sacrifice that you have made, pouring out your life for us that was an expression of your great faithful love. I just pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts, bring healing, bring freedom, and give us hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.